Look at the language that we are using. It's not a direct language. There are a lot of euphemism. There's a lot of jargon that we use. Joe will talk to you about the use of the word impact when <laughs> donors ask us for impact. And she'll tell you what is what does impact really mean in the English language. It means bam, it means crash, thud. You know, when you use that word, you expect immediate results. If you use influence, you recognize this is a slower process. This doesn't happen in three years or one year or whatever your funding period is. It happens over time and generations, really. So a word like influence is a better one and you could change. You don't. This episode is a no-cost extension special. Over the past season, we've talked a lot about the idea of impact. What does it mean? What should it mean? And all the conversations we've aired on no-cost extension have shed light on the ways in which we could be furthering and pushing to understand what impact, true social impact, could look like. Impact is closely connected to our imagination, the kind of society we are trying to build. In this special, we revisit our archives and bring audio in which our guests discuss what impact means to them. Donald Lobo from the Chintaguria Foundation has a different take on what it means to scale. Karen Doff speaks to us about impact through the example of the Sharnam Center for Girls in Mumbai. Safina Hussain from Educate Girls talks about the development impact bond and how it revolutionized the idea of flexible funding. And finally, Joe Chopra McGowan and Ravi Chopra recount what CSR funding has meant for the Latika Roy Foundation. We start with Donald Lobo from the Chintugudia Foundation. So whenever I talk to new funders, my first thing to them is always the more time you can go spend on the ground. Let's assume that we are talking about people who are actively involved, right? Going and spending time in the field is super, super important. Primarily to get that first-hand knowledge. Not that you're going to understand the program a lot better, but you're going to build a lot more empathy. You're going to kind of sympathize. You're going to kind of start looking at it more from the viewpoint of the NGO rather than the viewpoint of a third-party person. That's reality of what funding is all about, right? Trying to find a match between what you want to do and where you want the organization to go, assuming that you know enough about the problem, enough about the region. And then you really look at what does impact and scale mean? And I think scale is one of those things where people are kind of semi-fixated on it. And to me, especially in the NGO sector, it's like, to help with scale, right, means make sure that you're actually delivering something useful, something high quality, something high impact, right? Uh, for various definitions, and I'm not going to define any of means what high quality or high impact means. And uh, and you could define what those things, but make sure that you're delivering something really, really worth it. And then start thinking of scale, maybe in small baby steps first, and then bigger steps later on. And I think there's some amazing organizations like Sharanam Center for Girls. Will it ever scale? No. Do we want it to scale? Yeah, I'd love, love for it to scale. But practically speaking, we have no idea how will it ever scale. Is it a goal for us that it should scale? No, definitely not. Because what they are doing is incredibly powerful, is incredibly useful. And especially with regard to children and stuff like that, right? I always think about 
my own family, right? I have a tough enough time raising two kids. And so is it really realistic for us to expect organizations to really support like 10,000, 100,000, 1 million kids and really do a great job of it? I mean, if some organizations can do it, all power to them. And you'll go in with your eyes wide open out there. Uh, but it's also okay for some organizations to do an amazing job. 30 is like 15x a family of two. And if you look at over a long-term horizon of 10, right, it's not, it's not 30, it's actually 60, right? So 30x is ridiculous scale by any matter. For the longest time, Sharanam thought of itself as having capacity for 30 under its roof. This is Karen Doff speaking about the Sharanam Center. So for the longest time, there were 30 girls. And this was before anybody had completed uh, 12th grade. And so it was around 30, sometimes 31, 32, but that was sort of the maximum that were, that were in the home. And then when the first young woman graduated and went to college, pretty quickly, I think we realized, oh, that doesn't mean we can just bring one more in. <laughs> because being at college, it's, it's not about what's under the roof. And what we realized was, okay, so the first girl has gone off to nursing college and she's living at college, but we still have bills to pay. She still has needs. She's still going to come home at vacation time. And the next year when another one left, it was sort of the same thing. And the next year, three left. And so while the numbers in the house decreased, the total number was still the same. And actually their needs became a little bit greater in those years because now they're on a unique individual path. When they're all in the home, they have the same timings, the same meals, they're at the same schools. And as they started going off to college, suddenly now we're managing five new institutions, five new vacation schedules, five new unique sets of needs. And so those first couple of years of kids being at university was a whole different level of scale and learning really for us to learn what that looks like. And so as girls started leaving and going to college, we slowly started adding one more. Three would leave, we'd bring one more into the house as we really worked to figure out what does that balance look like. And then as they started finishing university, then it was, oh, well, what kind of support will they need as they finish university? Do they need help finding a place to live? Are their jobs going to be stable? Are their salaries going to cover their expenses? And there's things that we've done around these sets of kids. So for example, for the older girls who are independent, we made a decision early on that we would continue to support their health care. Most of them work in jobs where they're not provided with employer health care. And so we knew that some of the level of care that they've received, especially seeing the dentist every year and the eye doctor every year and getting new eyeglasses, that those are things that are costly and might not be easily affordable when you're on your first salary or prioritized when you're on your first salary. So we've told all of the girls who are independent, they're independent, but they're still going to go every year to the dentist and to the eye doctor, and they can still go to our eyeglasses shop and get their eyeglasses. And we'll phase those things out at some point, but today we still do those kinds of things. And so that's been some of how we've grown and, and how we've scaled as well, and the, the depth that we've looked at, even for these girls who are working and reasonably independent. 
And now, Safina Hussain from Educate Girls. The power dynamic is so not in favor of the NGO. And there's this constant push to do something innovative. There's this constant push to do something new. There's this constant push to do something very cost effective, which are really kind of false narratives in some way or form. Because A, we need you know, sort of evidence-based things to go to much, much, much larger scale. If I had to compare you know, yours and my children versus one of the children we work with, I would say, you know, a $100 investment for our child is enough, but for a poor child, you should be investing $1,000 because their needs are so extreme, because they don't have that vocabulary, because they don't have so many things, versus we flip it in the development sector and say, make that the poorest, the hungriest child, cost-effective, you know, when we're serving them. And I think these are all like really false narratives. This parachuting in, parachuting out of a one-year projects, which we self-congratulate ourselves on being highly innovative. And I think uh, this is really where, where the problem is. And also a lot of this investment is based on some activity. Uh, I don't know, swimming classes for baby monkeys or something. <laughs> it was like so innovative. And we did it for a year. <laughs> it was fantastic. You know? But instead, and I think that the bond, the development impact bond, Everybody thinks it was a fundraising instrument, but actually the reason behind it was saying, how do we become results-based? Pay me for the result. Don't get so hooked on and then micromanage the living daylights out of the poor NGO regarding your activities. And the bond was essentially, the way I saw it was, okay, between the donor and the grantee, let's decide what is the success we want to see. What is the money you'll give me? Then give me the money and get out of the way because, you know, <laughs> come and see if the result is achieved or not and then pay the funds. And the dip was a three-year small transaction, probably one of the smallest bonds ever. And yet it was so successful, not in terms of the financials or in terms of the results that we saw, but in terms of what it taught us as an organization. You have to give long-term, flexible funding, which is tied to results versus tied to activity. A child's education cannot happen in a year. I mean, that bond was three years. Ideally, I would say make them 10 years because education for a child is a 10-year business, right? Why are you getting in and getting out in a, in a year? You're not doing that child any favors. But at least this particular day, we were able to do for three years. It was patient money. It was completely unrestricted. It was just tied to X number of children being able to read and write or X number of girls coming back into school who had previously been out of school. And what it also showed us was, which we always knew, but now there was a third party evaluator validating these things, that you know, it took us three years, but we brought back 92% of all out of school girls back into school. Three years, but it was, you know, that's how long it takes. The first year you'll get all the young ones in and second and third year, the older girls, the ones whose circumstances are even more difficult, but it is possible. It is possible to bring everybody back into school. The second, I think it showed that learning outcomes is not a one-year cycle, right? First year, we achieved about 25% of our target. Second year, we hit around 50%. And it was by the third year that we hit 160% of our goals. And that's because even with any child, there's a tipping point. You're getting your first-generation learner. You're getting your most marginalized child. And you're expecting that I should just see all the results in year one. And everything comes back to money. How are you funding? Unfortunately, we see so much of this. It's single year, 
you know, parachute in, parachute out, funding to the, to the NGO sector, which I, I think uh, really does a disservice to the causes that we're working for. And finally, here's Joe and Ravi on their experiences with CSR funding. Some of our best funding comes from CSR money, where they admit happily and openly that they don't know anything about what we're doing or how best to do it, but they trust us. We've always encouraged CSR teams to come and visit us, and that has been transformative for them. They have seen disabled kids sometimes for the first time. They see the changes that come about in their lives, and they feel like we know what we're doing. The thing we can do for you is give you the money. And they do. And they it's it's a transaction. They just say, here's the money. Do what you want. I remember once going back to the, um, I happen to know the head of the company, and I was asking if it was okay if we could reallocate what they had given us for some purpose because we weren't able to use it all in the one we had planned on. And he said, what? And I said, yeah, you know, we need permission. He said, you don't need permission. It's your money. Do what you want with it. And it was such a Oh, such a pleasure to have a big amount of money. I mean, they give us in crores. And he just said, up to you. Just give us the final tally at the end, and we're good with that because we trust you. We know you know what you're doing. You're not going to come and tell us how to do what we do. And I, I think there's a lot to be said for that as well. The heart drives passion, and it's the passion to see some good work survived. The donor's passion is, I came and I saw the work that you are doing. That's good enough for me. But it begins with some something emerging from the heart that I've got to go out and do some good. Find us at dasra.org forward slash NCE for more details. Subscribe to No Cost Extension on your favorite podcast platform.